My name is Dave Sattler, and I'm one of the pastors here at North Shore Alliance Church. And for those of us educated in Canada in the 1990s or earlier, the actual history of how indigenous peoples were treated when Canada was first being colonized was not part of our school curriculum. So we've made Missions Month 2020 about learning from the stories of our indigenous friends. And last week, we presented historical facts about the Indian residential schools and the 60 Scoop. And we heard an incredible story from our friend Brian. Recommendation number 59 from the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission report says this. We call upon churches to ensure that their respective congregations learn about their church's role in colonization and why apologies to former residential school students, their families, and communities were necessary. I've gotten a lot of feedback this past week. Way more than the usual nice sermon, Pastor. For this topic brings up a lot of emotions. And I want to say that it's perfectly normal to feel strongly about some of the facts and the history that we've been presenting. And I want to reiterate, we won't get this 100% correct, but leadership feels it best to address this vital part of our history rather than keep silent about it. I'm grateful for Cindy Wong, Burnaby school teacher, young mom, longtime attendee of North Shore Alliance Church, married to Brian, passionate about her faith and the topic of truth and reconciliation with and for Canada's indigenous peoples. And Cindy comes again today to help tell more of the story. Let's give it up for Cindy. Not so young, but thank you. Good morning. <laughs> so I'd like to acknowledge that we are on the uh, traditional unceded territories of the Squamish Nation. It's, um, sometimes it's hard to find space in our hearts and in our minds when there is so much uh, tumult going on in, in our world, in society, in our lives. And it's hard to think about history when there's so much going on and why we do need to continue to look at it. Of course, how do we make the present better if our, our history is not great? And so in uh, a shout out to the Grinch, let's make our hearts three times bigger, shall we? So as a continuation of last week, um, we are going to delve a little bit into a slice of North Shore history. Um, so just taking a look at our are the land that we are a little bit closer to um, in regards to the church and also um, just the North Shore in general. So, of course, uh, last day we talked about how we are on the land of Tsleil-Waututh and also Squamish nations. The Tsleil-Waututh, uh, originally the traditional territories spanned from... BC through Washington through Oregon. And when we think about the Squamish nations on which, of course, our church stands, um, the traditional territories were, were huge. It was close to 7,000 square kilometers. And it's interesting because at the present moment, um, less than 0.5% of that land is allotted to the nation itself. It is an amalgamation of 23 villages, so it just gives us a sense of, uh, you know, the territory. And uh, traditionally, it's spanned from Greater Vancouver to Gibson's Landing to Squamish River Watershed. Now, that information is all from First Nations BC Knowledge Network. 
Specifically, closer to the church, we're thinking about residential schools. Well, was there a residential school close by? Well, in fact, there was. Um, if we could just move the slides forward uh, by a few, that would be great. Thank you. So St. Paul's Residential School in North Vancouver on Keith Road sat on the land of what is currently St. Thomas Aquinas. It ran from 1899 to 1959. There is little information to be found uh, specifically regarding this residential school, but what we do know was at one point, um, Indian agents upon visiting and inspecting the school did find it to be overcrowded and the students were malnourished. Um, but what is more interesting, so I don't want to solely focus on the location of the school while that is important, but really the connection that we um, have to it. So in Dave and my research um, through the last couple of months, um, I had the privilege of meeting or speaking with Tamara Miller, who happens to be a staff member at Lionsgate Christian Academy and of Squamish Nation. She shared with us a story and an article about her great-grandfather. And her great-grandfather uh, did attend St. Paul's for a year and completed school there. Now, what is most important about Swachtel Andrew Paul was that he leaves behind a legacy of advocacy. He leaves behind a legacy of advocacy for his people. Now, because um, there were obviously many barriers for him as a member of the indigenous community. Um, he, despite being nearly trained as a lawyer, he was able to uh, follow and follow the guidance of a lawyer in downtown Vancouver, but he fell short of being able to take the exam. Now, this was because in order to take the exam at the time, uh, the BC Law Society demanded that, well, not demanded, it was an expectation that everybody was a registered voter. And of course, being indigenous, Zwechtal was not able to be um, a voter. And so he decided, rather than giving up his Indian status and leaving reserve, he maintained status, but was not, be, was not able to become a lawyer. This didn't stop him from his advocacy work, though. So in spite of those challenges, he still advocated and often represented his family and friends. He fought for indigenous rights, for fishing and hunting, for education, for health care. And so this leads us to contemplate the role of advocacy today. So when we think about how there is still more advocacy that needs to be done and why we're doing these little snippets, well, it's because this isn't over. It isn't over because suicide rates for Indigenous youth is three times higher than that of any other youth group in Canada. It isn't over because when we look at um, the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry, it only came about because there were over 1,200 names of missing and murdered Indigenous women whose names came forth, and then it prompted an inquiry. But that had to take place first. And this is systemic racism that we're looking at right now. So then when we think about this, and the fact that Indigenous women and girls are six times more likely to be murdered this is stark, and this is difficult information. And what do we do as we hold this information? And that's not even going on to say, which I will say, 
clean drinking water. Um, there are multiple pres uh, reserves that face unclean drinking water, but this past July in Attawapiskat, um, the community couldn't even use the water to bathe. So not only was it unpotable, but it was so contaminated that it would be dangerous for its population to use at all. And so that brings us into even the racial profiling of just this past week, there was a story in the news, very unfortunately, where a financial institution um, sat down with um, two members of the indigenous community and uh, it was a grandfather and granddaughter who sat down wanting to open up a bank account. And very swiftly, um, they were suspected of fraud and the VPD were called and both were handcuffed. Both were since um, released and were found innocent. But that is how quickly assumptions could be made. And so we're talking about history, we're talking about um, racism, we're talking about how easy it is to look at people and, and draw judgment. And so this is a clear reminder for us that we need to be meeting people with compassion and understanding. And that is how we are called to approach people. And that's all people. Thank you very much, Cindy, for your time and effort put into helping us learn more about this important part of our history. This morning, I aim to challenge a couple of myths. Number one, that Christian mission is all bad. A conclusion drawn by many, especially younger people who've been bombarded with stories in our education system of the failures of the Christian church, particularly when it comes to the mistreatment of Canada's indigenous peoples. We'll spend more time today tackling myth number two, that Christian mission strategy means bending the natives to a white Western worldview. I plan to take these two commonly held ideas and hold them up to the light of God's word, which I believe suggests rather clearly that the Christian story expresses itself uniquely in all cultures. Back in 2002, I was with our North Shore Alliance youth missions team in the northern Philippines. Back in my young youth pastor days, we were visiting our North Shore Alliance church missionaries whom we had sent to plant a church amongst an unreached people group, a tribe with no fully documented language, no Bible, and little prior understanding of the Christian story. After a few days in Manila, we made our way up north, and I was with Jeff Harada, my missionary friend, when we stopped at a remote village still a ways away from the tribe and to my surprise, when we got out of the bus, I looked up and saw a church. And I blurted out to Jeff, there's already a church in town. Why in the world did we send you here? And Jeff said, listen. And I heard music coming from that church. And it was even a song I knew. Lord, I lift your name on high. And the people were singing it in English and doing the actions just like we did in church back home. And when I looked over at Jeff, he said, you'll have to wait till the end of the sermon to hear what he said. <laughs> in 2015, upon release of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report that followed a seven-year inquiry initiated by Stephen Harper's government, Senator Murray Sinclair declared to the House of Commons, Canada has committed cultural genocide. And he went on. 
The purpose of the Indian residential schools was not to kill the children, but to kill the culture. It's difficult to judge the intentions of Canada's first European settler. From French colonist Samuel de Champlain in the early 1600s to Sir John A. Macdonald, who in the mid-1800s, along with other mostly British colonists, had the driving vision to form a federation to unite this land from sea to sea. What was going through their minds? We can go to the next slide, please, Jack. Were they approaching Canada's indigenous people from a sense of their own cultural superiority? Did their mission to convert have some godly motive behind it? That they wanted Canada's indigenous peoples to experience the power of Jesus that many of them had encountered themselves? Was living in harmony with Canada's Aboriginal, Inuit, and Métis, or negotiating with them, even an option? Or, far away from queen and country, were they so fearful for their lives that they felt the need to use legislation and force to control? Or, was their vision of empire, dreaming of the possibilities before them of a land rich in resources, clouding their decision-making? One will never know for certain what our first European colonizers were driven by. But what we do know is that their actions have radically altered the lives of our indigenous peoples. Today, we come to Ephesians chapter 2. It's page 1,819 in the fat blue Bibles. It's page 947 and 48 in the semi-fat blue Bibles. And it's page 814 in the other Bible I found in the seat racks. There's three of them out there. I didn't even know that till today. It will not be on the big screen, so you need to look it up now or fire it up on your electronic device. Ephesians chapter 2. But first, let's have a little history to set the stage. We must remember that Christianity was birthed out of Judaism, an ethnic religion of the Jews. Yet, in the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles, people not born of Jewish heritage, rarely associated with one another. Walls divided them. So in the first century, when Jesus ushered in a new day and Gentiles started coming to faith, there was a problem. In the eyes of a Jew, the uncircumcision of a Gentile was a symbol of uncleanness and estrangement from God. And this posed a big question. Did Gentiles need to be circumcised, have the Gentile taken out of them, become Jewish first, before converting to Christianity? So we come to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Therefore, Paul says, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision... Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For Christ himself is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. God, we thank you for your word. And I ask now, God, that you would come and move me out of the way and come and speak to us by your spirit. God, would you challenge us today? God, would you also comfort us today? As we listen to your word, God, we ask that you would speak to us, for we are hungry to hear from you. Amen. We mustn't forget where we've come from. Paul reminds Ephesian Gentiles, you used to be separate from Christ, excluded from salvation, without hope. Before conversion, Paul himself took tremendous pride in his Jewishness, circumcised on the eighth day. But now, he had come to learn that circumcision was religiously irrelevant. And so to his fellow Jews, Paul would say, it is not our heritage or our ability to keep religious ceremony like circumcision that saves us. We, too, without Jesus, are unclean. And if it weren't for Jesus, none of us would be saved, Jew or Gentile. And the Christian story confronts this kind of ethnocentrism, our feelings of cultural superiority, our subtle racism, our suspicions, and our fears about the other. The gospel message, there is hope for all peoples. Gentiles are no longer outsiders, and Jews are no longer privileged. Because of Jesus, there's a level playing field. When we lose touch with God's grace, or forget where we've come from, over time, a certain arrogance, a spiritual smugness can set in that blinds us to our own inadequacies and magnifies in our minds the faults of others. And this is dangerous for us, for other people, for Christian mission, and for the gospel. Paul, he knew a lot about walls. He's likely writing the book to the Ephesians from behind prison walls in Rome. Because years earlier and miles away, many miles away, Paul had been arrested for ushering a Gentile, Trophimus, the Ephesian, into the temple. And this was a huge no-no. You see, there was a vertical wall built into the architecture meant 
to keep Gentiles from entering the inner courts of the temple in Jerusalem. And any Gentile caught behind that wall would be punished with death. And Acts 21 says, Paul's actions that day in bringing a Gentile into the inner courts aroused the whole city. The violence of the mob was so great, Paul had to be carried off by Roman soldiers. And he would spend his remaining years in custody behind prison walls. Why Paul here and later calls himself a prisoner of Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. This passage is one of a few places only in Scripture where the doctrine of reconciliation is explained. And I love to razz Tammy, our church accountant, about how she does very high-level spiritual work in QuickBooks. She does. It's reconciliation. Those accountants out there, you should be giving me an amen right now. The reconciliation, the balancing or settling of accounts. Reconciliation, the making of a view or a belief compatible with another. Reconciliation, the restoring of relationship. In the Christian story, reconciliation, both vertical and horizontal, is taken care of by Jesus. Our CPA, if you will, or the ultimate accountant. Verse 14 says, Christ himself is our peace. Jesus doesn't just make peace or keep the peace. Jesus becomes peace. And here a double reconciliation occurs. At the cross, Jesus reconciles all people to God through his death. And Jesus reconciles Jews to Gentiles and puts them all in one family. This is earth-shattering news. Like one commentator puts it, Jewish particularism and Gentile exclusion are now things of the past. In the vertical, Jesus gives access to all, to the God of the universe. As if that's hard to get our heads around, in the horizontal, Jesus, our paragon of peace, destroys the wall of hostility between us and all other people. It's a concept perhaps even more difficult for us to embrace. For the first three centuries of his existence, the Christian church adopted what many deemed a third way. In his book, Resilient Faith, Gerald Sitzer says, the third way was like a resistance movement, both subversive and peaceful, but rather than following a strategy of violent revolution, Christians immersed themselves in the culture as agents of the kingdom. Many of the first believers were Jews. Many were also Roman citizens. But it was their third passport, follower of the way of Christ, that was their real identity and the only one that they truly wanted to live by. Here's the thing. The Christian story offers a new kind of citizenship, one not contingent upon race, but on Jesus and his saving work on the, Christ, on the cross. In Christ, no one is excluded anymore. Foreigners and strangers are made fellow citizens with God's people of diverse backgrounds, but one faith, faith in Jesus, that governs their lives in a galvanizing and impactful way. It's why church, when we get it right, does so much good in the world. 
It's not a building or an institution or a set of religious beliefs even, but a group of people, a community who through Christ's love miraculously live in harmony with one another and in ways that don't make sense to the watching world. I'm part of this. Church takes all sorts of people, and I mean all sorts of people, and makes them into a family. His household, built together with Christ Jesus himself as chief cornerstone, and together we become a dwelling place where God lives by his Spirit, powerfully reflecting his glory in and to this world. Well, it's time to land the plane now on a couple of application points. First is this. For those who've been made to feel less than. That the Lord makes no qualitative distinction in his created order for age, appearance, gender, socioeconomics, intelligence, ethnicity, or any other factor ought to excuse anyone from being targeted or marginalized. Yet, tragically, this still happens all the time. Human beings are mistreated for reasons beyond their control, for things they never signed up for. People are ruthless to each other. And sadly, Christian community is not exempt from such mistreatments, prejudice, And aggressive displays of superiority are never the correct method for settling theological disputes, leading people, or discipling them. This is spiritual abuse, not the way of Christ. Spiritual abuse is some of the nastiest stuff on earth, for it breaks trust and hampers our most important relationship, the relationship between us and God. So... On behalf of the church and for our church, again, we confess to Canada's indigenous peoples, to non-Caucasians, new immigrants, refugees, to people on income assistance or disability, to the homeless, to people battling addiction or mental health, to the poor, to all who have ever been made to feel less than, we are sorry. And also importantly, to God who created all peoples with dignity, love, and value, and whom we, the church, have greatly misrepresented. God, we are sorry. And at risk of sounding trite to those who have ever felt less than, I want to say that, yes, the church, Christian people, have failed you. And they might fail you again in the future. But I have to say this. Jesus will never fail you. I know this to be true in my own life as he has helped me to move on from some of the things I've experienced too. And I want to encourage you with this. Jesus understands. And he is there in your pain. And you can experience healing of your woundedness in Jesus as you call on him. Second, 
the Christian story expresses itself uniquely in all cultures. I've long been intrigued by the story of Hudson Taylor. Sent as a missionary to China in the mid-1800s, incidentally around about the same time that Canada was being colonized by mostly British settlers. After mission training in England, Taylor heads east. He's 21 when he finally sets foot in China to begin his mission work. And after some years of mostly unsuccessful attempts to reach the Chinese, Taylor felt led to adopt native costume, learn the language, live in a Chinese house, eat Chinese food only using chopsticks. He even shaved bald and had a ponytail woven into the small tuft of hair remaining in the back of his head. Why did Hudson Taylor adopt this mission strategy that wasn't in his training even when it caused his fellow missionaries to disown him and eventually prompted many of his supporters back in England to withdraw their funding for his mission. What was Taylor's vision? He said this, We wish to see Christian Chinese churches, he said, presided over by pastors of their own countrymen, worshipping the one true God in the land of their fathers, in the costume of their fathers, and in their own tongue. And Hudson Taylor committed his life to raising up the Chinese church. And history tells of how long after Western missionaries were thrown out and under communism, and to this day, the Christian church in China has survived and even thrived. We're seeing a massive global shift in missions in our lifetime. As the Christian church is in the so-called first world, shrunks, shrinks, much of its growth and momentum worldwide is happening now in lesser developed third world nations. In his book, From Every Tribe and Nation, church historian Mark Knoll comments, translating the Bible into new Christian regions bestows unusual dignity on them as well as conveying to them substantial control over the development of their own faith. He goes on, older stereotypes types about crass imperialism or the spiritual heroism of white Western missionaries are giving way to a much more nuanced picture. Over the years, I've had the joy of being on many mission teams and trips. And I've experienced that deep fellowship in the spirit with people from other nations that goes across language and culture barriers. And it's beautiful. But there's another feeling that I've experienced too and not enjoyed. I've been put on a pedestal, treated with, in my opinion, too much respect, patronized, deferred to because of my perceived privilege, because I'm seen to be wiser, godlier, the leader. And I wonder how I and my white Western culture have done that, created those feelings of inferiority for people of other races. By far my favorite part of our 2019 Zambia missions trip was not our mission to, but our mission with the local Zambian youth from Project Samuel. We ended up running soccer camps and kids' ministries each day for nearly 200 children and youth from the local villages. 
Zambia is an English-speaking country, which makes mission there fairly easy for Westerners. But English is not their heart language. And so we asked the Project Samuel youth to daily translate the two most important things, the Bible messages and the soccer training. (laughs) And they translated those into Nianja, their local tribal language. And my highlight was seeing the Zambian youth excitedly sharing the gospel with their village friends and leading their friends in small group discussions about Jesus. Back to my story. So I'm with Jeff Harada, and I'm dumbfounded. There's already a church in the middle of the mountains in the northern Philippines, and they're singing, Lord, I lift your name on high, in English. And we're doing the actions with them. No, no. Jeff turns to me, and he says something like this. Sattler, we are here to plant a different kind of church. And Jeff and Christine and the kids, like Hudson Taylor, moved into the tribe, learning the language and culture of the Ewok people to give them the opportunity, if they wanted it, to learn about Jesus in their own language. And the people came. And today, long after the Haradas have come home, there's still a church there. It's a very unique tribal expression of the Christian story with a young man, Bert, born and raised on the mountain, who's become one of their leaders, teaching, writing, and leading worship songs to Jesus in their native language. Good mission strategy. So we come to the Lord's Supper, where all are invited to participate in communion with the Savior. In a few moments, I want to encourage you to feel free to come by yourself, or you can come in groups with a friend or family member. Come forward row by row, starting from the back. Your server will hold out the loaf. Please tear off a piece of bread Your other server will hold out the cup, and please dip that bread in the cup, and then you can eat it. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says, remember where you've come from. Remember how much I love you. Remember what I've done for you. And everyone here. I love the opening lines of the song, King of Kings, we'll sing it later. In the darkness, we were waiting without hope. Without light. Till from heaven, Jesus, you came running. There was mercy in your eyes. This is all of us. Lost without Jesus coming to reconcile us. Reconciling us to God and leveling the playing field, breaking down the walls, reconciling us also to each other. Amen. Servers, worship team, people, please come.